Hello, and welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we talk about things that are interesting to our team that we've found throughout the week or over the past. I am actually your host today, Trevor Yerish, sitting in for Chris White. He is out on hiatus, so you're stuck with me for at least a few weeks. But I'm here today with, uh, we've, we brought on an amazing guest, somebody we've known for a long time and has advised us in consulting and has run consultancies of his own and is just uh, full of wisdom uh, when it comes to anything from project management to team management and really how to get the most out of a, out of a dev team. So I have with me Mr. Marcus Blankenship. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Trevor. That what a nice introduction. Thank you. Well, you're you are incredible. I feel that way about you. I I, I really do. The love flows both ways. <laughs> so we've known each other for about six years now. Yeah, something like that. I think so. Yeah, and a lot has happened in the last six years. Woo! Are we going to do that where we reminisce with the old well, war stories? <laughs> it's not so much about reminiscing. I mean, I love reminiscing, but we'll have to do that when we get together. I'd actually love just just a quick sort of recap um, about what is the few bullet points that are sort of your career as, as, a, as an owner, as a product owner, and sort of what led to you going down this new path of MarcusBlinkenship.com, which isn't new. It's, you've been doing this for a couple of years now, right? Yeah, three years. Three years now, yeah. So not even a couple, like more than a couple. That's right. If it were a child, they'd be walking for sure. <laughs> And almost potty trained, maybe. <laughs> One could only hope. If only so your business. Tell me about your, how you got to your potty trained business here. Oh, I love that phrase. Yeah. Well, let's see. I worked for uh, 14 years at a big global ma- manufacturing company. Uh, it's based here in the town I live in called Jeldwen. And that's really where I learned the art and craft of leading developers and manage, uh, managing software projects. I was a developer there for a long time as well. And uh, then sort of in the middle or right on the cusp of the worst recession we've seen in a very long time, I decided the time was right in a small town in the middle of nowhere to start going out on my own and building websites. So actually- amazing. Oh, such good timing. And that was Creo Agency? That's right. Well, okay, it has an original name we don't like to talk about, but the original name, have I ever told you the original name? I think so. Okay, because Creo was the cool name. The original name was, I can't even believe you- it was Linkville Web Design, and there was a pair of cowboy boots on the homepage. <laughs> and that's Linkville. Because, what is it? Linkville what? Linkville Web Design. And uh, I owned the domain for many, many years. Uh, I got logos done. We had business cards. And it turns out that, well, the reason is because we got some advice from the small business administration lady that said local sounding businesses are more popular. So the original name for our town is Linkville because it linked Portland and Klamath Falls and San Francisco. There was no I-5 originally. There was just a railway. So this was halfway between. It was the link. Turns out that that is really an awful name. Uh, it definitely, if you want to talk about branding, it sets the tone immediately as to the kind of quality you can expect. So we rebranded about a year in to Creo Agency. And Creo is the Latin verb to create. 
So we thought that was very nifty. Uh, that, that lasted about seven years. And then the partnership imploded and I just decided I didn't want to go get a real job. And I thought, well, maybe I can help other people not wreck their agencies and they'll pay me. So, um, and I, well, yeah. In Creo, though, your team grew quite a mm-hmm. bit and then you also had massive projects with massive clients. I guess when you were wrapping up Creo and moving into the not so new anymore venture of consulting, private consulting, what made you decide that transition? Where, how did you end up there? You know, that was rough because my partner, so yeah, we had 16 or 20 people. So we laid everybody off. We laid all the contractors off. Um, my partners uh, were quite a bit younger than I, and they both moved to the Bay Area and got jobs, uh, good jobs, jobs at Disney, jobs at a startup, making a lot of money. Um, I, a, I didn't want to move. So we live in this tiny town and I thought, I don't want to move. I did go do interviews in Portland and San Francisco. And at the end, I just said, hmm, kids in school, wife has a job, moving would really be disruptive to our lives. And then the other thing I thought was I could get a job, but I just had this sense that I wasn't quite done with my entrepreneurial journey, that I had a little more fire in the belly, that mm-hmm. maybe, just maybe, I could do something crazy and uh, pull off a second iteration. So frankly, I here's my secret. I always tell people who want to start a business. I started just giving away my time for free to people in my network who owned businesses and who wanted to uh, improve their teams or improve their business. And I didn't think this was a business. I thought it was just being nice. But after I was booking about 16 to 20 free calls a week, repeatedly with the same people over and over, I realized, oh my gosh, maybe this, maybe this is something people would pay for. So it took about eight months before I finally asked someone for money. And then I was completely shocked that they gave me any money because I felt like such an imposter. You know, when you fail, you figure you're not the person people want advice from. But it turns out that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from failure. And sometimes you can help other people by spotting their failures or potential failures early. Well, and there's also an argument, and you know, you're not making this argument, but there's an argument to be made that your company did last seven years and it was during the recession, right? Sure. And, and in web, you know, in a town in the middle of Oregon, there's a lot of, of stumbling blocks and things that you had to get through just to grow a team and an agency in a remote location in the tech world and be able to take on large companies and survive doing that during the recession. So, again, yes, I think all things come to an end at some point, you know, we evolve, things move into, they change. And, but, you know, I think that there probably was a ton of success to be gleaned from that, not just learning from the, the, the actual failing of the business. There's a, obviously a ton to be learned there because <laughs> you can see all the indicators, right? Right. But yeah. So anyways, I, I, I say that because it's that imposter syndrome thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and how we, it, to some degree. We do. And how we frame things. So for example, I framed this as a failure that then I learned from. But of course, the other way to look at that would be to say it was a massive success that I decided I no longer wanted to contribute to, that I no longer wanted to do. And that was very true as well. The partners and I, 
did not run out of money. We didn't crash the airplane into the side of the mountain. We intentionally said that for one reason or another, we no longer want to do this business. So while we have sufficient money in the bank to live for multiple months, and we could afford to give nice severances, let's intentionally make a decision rather than waiting if the future would have brought a decision to us. For example, businesses fail when they run out of run out of clients or they get cash poor or whatever. So sure. I had some advice from an advisor I called up as we were having problems as a leadership team. And he told me this, well, I hate to say it, but your business is dead already. You just haven't figured it out. You're kind of a zombie. You're walking around dead. You just haven't had the sense to lie down. So now you have to ask yourself, do you crash the plane when you come to your employees one day and say, yesterday everything was great, but today you don't have jobs and your paychecks won't clear? Or do you land it safe, safely and gracefully and sort of be mature about it? Yeah. And uh, I went to my partners and I told them and they said, he's completely wrong, he's stupid, and uh, no, we're going to be fine. And it took another three months and I kept bringing it up. And finally they were like, well, maybe there's something to this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, okay. So fast forward, here we are. And let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts of, of your business, because it's something that I know, again, we've, we have utilized your services. We've done consulting with you. It just, well, first of all, I have to say in, in, in the entire world, I feel like you're one of the best question askers. Oh, why do you say that? <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. Um, that's, that's, you know, and I think, you know, in consulting, that seems to be one of the magic bullets is, is just being really good at asking the right, asking good questions that lead to the right questions. And so that's something that I've always admired uh, about witnessing your, your participation in any, any, any situation that you you end up plugged into. And so that's a big one. But uh, let's talk a little bit about why, you know, why somebody would come to you. And again, this is not a paid for produced thing. This is not a commercial for your business. But I'm really excited about what it is that you do. And it's, it has a lot to do with my job here at Zeal. And when it comes to project management, when it comes to team management, when it comes to morale management, when it comes to picking projects and client relations and all of those things, these are all types of things that you, that you, that you talk about. So again, maybe I'll just hand it back off to you and say, hey, what, what are some of the top things that you see companies like ours zeal struggling with and what are some of the best methods in which you've found to to work with those companies sure and and i am just gonna say completely openly that you guys are definitely at the top of my list when people say who should i do business with when it comes to mature individuals who build fantastic software who are kind nice non-arrogant people like you're the first people that come to mind and and i just wow. want to say that and i know a lot of agencies and there's a lot of them that i don't recommend and i wouldn't recommend because of some of the problems we'll talk about so here is a couple of the problems that i hear a lot first problem very technical founder or a very brilliant designer founder who can't let go of the work, who thinks that the only kind of 
of activity that is real work is if they're coding or designing and that managing your team is a, should, is a distraction, that marketing is a distraction, that dealing with clients is all a distraction, when in reality, that is the job of the leadership team. Like, they really don't want to be in leadership. And I kind of call them the accidental manager. Like, they woke up one day and started a company, and they were like, you know what, I'm leaving my day job because I never want, you know, no bosses, bosses suck. So I'm going to go do this thing. And over time they hire people and they're like, we don't have managers or bosses here. Like we're all just super great people and good friends and, you know, buddies. And then the team is looking at them like, well, you're the manager. And they're like, well, I didn't ever want to be the manager. So it's a pretty difficult transition to realize that there is really work in leading leading people, leading projects and clients. And I get a lot of folks who who secretly wish they weren't doing it anymore. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. It doesn't just make sense. There's a lot of that that resonates, if you will. I definitely am in a position where I've faced a lot of those uh, struggles myself, being in the work and and also having a lot of the work sort of rest on your shoulders. That's, you know, sometimes it's not just choice, it's circumstance, it's how you arrange it, it's how it's situated that 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 leads to that as well. Uh, so yeah, that re- that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and there are times when the owners have to pitch in. There are times that there's just no other option. I get it. I've been there. But I think one of the biggest failings is not creating a middle management tier between the individual contributors and the founders. So I'll go into a company and a lot of times the founders are still like the person who's the CTO founder is managing, quote unquote, managing 25 engineers in a flat hierarchy. That sounds really good on paper because somehow people are opposed to hierarchy, uh, even though we actually really thrive in it is what a lot of studies show. But the CTO doesn't want to be looked at as the boss. And so basically they've just spread themselves so thin that nobody's going to get managed too much because there's 25 people running around. And unfortunately, a lot of times they hide this under the phrase empowered teams. Mm-hmm. And they go out and they, I feel like they run out into the open area where everyone's working and they, every morning they just yell, you're empowered, do the right thing. And then they go back <laughs> into their office and shut the door and go back to to coding or designing. <laughs> and then when things don't go well, they get really confused or they get upset and they say, why do people make such bad choices or why don't they get it? I don't know why this phrase, I hear it all the time, but when I ask someone, tell me about your worst performer, 90% of the time the phrase, they just don't get it, comes into play. They can't put their finger on it, but there's something that person doesn't get. And I'll say, well, what do they do when you tell them it, whatever it is to you? Well, I don't tell them it. I don't like to, that'd be like, I don't like to have those discussions, but I'm glaring at them a lot. So they should figure out that I'm upset and that, you know, they're in trouble. And these kinds of passive aggressive qualities aren't going to help you owning the business. You you need to learn to be more clear and simple and direct. I I will definitely say that for a long time, we fell into that camp where we were migrating closer and closer to a quote unquote flat organization. And we were utilizing terms like empowered team. And, and, you know, to some extent, there's a lot, there's a lot 
to the idea of empowering people on teams and, and, and equipping them with everything they need to be able to do their job well and having the, the ability to impact and influence and affect the outcome. Truly. So I think there's a lot to that. The, the thing is, is you're right, and I, we definitely experience this. It is something that in management you can hide behind. You can sort of shirk responsibility by saying we let them sort of figure it out and they're empowered to make the right decisions and, you know, all of that. So I, I definitely hear that. We did institute on the on sort of the back of that a while back. We, um, I don't remember how long, but we've been doing it for quite a while now. We do one-on-ones with our team and we've been doing them weekly, which feels like a lot. I'm not going to lie. It feels like a lot. And we split them up between the two, Adam and I, the uh, two owners, we, we split it up. And and it, it, it is a lot, particularly right now, because Adam's out. He just uh, recently had a baby, so he's on leave right now. But what I'll say is, in the past, when we would point and say that we knew what was going on with the team, just because we have this open communication, we're friendly, we, we feel like we create space for things to come up, it was eye-opening to have one-on-ones and realize the things that we weren't hearing about. Yeah. And uh, I want to applaud you for having one-on-ones because it is not easy, especially when between being pulled to billable work or client work or the million things you do as a business owner, the one-on-one seems so easy to skip just this once, right? Because let's be honest, like, oh, everything is fine with Jan or Bob. And you're like, look, could I just have 30 minutes? Like sometimes you're just at the end of your rope. And I just want to applaud you for doing them because I think you do learn so much more. And you you take the open, friendly environment where people work together and you start to really forge deep bi-directional trust relationships. You can give feedback in a one-on-one meeting and you can ask for feedback in a one-on-one meeting that you'd never hear anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And without it, I, I think that you're really limiting your team's potential. And and just for the official word, I am a huge fan of empowered teams when they're real. I like the way you put it, hiding behind the phrase. Mm. I think that's something that happens a lot. So don't get me wrong. I love empowered teams. I don't like people who just walk around telling, you know, managers who just tell everyone what to do. But I think if we're not giving any direction or context, we're going to be pretty upset and disappointed. And the team will quickly realize that, it's actually not safe to be this empowered. We're like a little kid out in traffic, right? We could get hurt and the business could get hurt. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, I think, really what it comes down to is is having a pulse on what is actually happening in your business. You know, at the, about the same time, maybe a little bit before, we also did took a step in the direction of what you were talking about, about creating some middle management where we we went from what was pretty flat. There was the two of us and then there was a pretty flat organization and we created a director of consulting who essentially is that person who runs the engineering team. And again, like <laughs> that was a whole 
the other piece where there's conversations that people can have with him that they, you know, just honestly, I feel like they choose not to have with us and they've got their reasons and that's okay. I feel like we create a very safe environment and that there's, you can't really say anything to like, that's going to offend or get you fired. Even if you like really come at us. I, I mean, cause we thrive on that. Like I want criticism. I want to know how I can improve as a you know, business owner or as somebody who's running a project or what, you know, whatnot. And, um, and so, but still just having that layer of that layer of abstraction is helpful for people to, you know, um, be able to open up in different ways. And also he's better at it than I was. <laughs> Good for you for admitting that. Golly, yeah. that's hard to do. Oh yeah, he's he's better at it, you know, than than either of us were uh, when it comes to that, you know, that solid just very, you know, T's across, I's are dotted ability to follow through on on what needs to be done, right? And 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 I, you know, we I think that's something we both knew about ourselves, but really were able to reflect on after we made that choice and, and started working in that direction. That's very cool. So anyway. Yeah. 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 Let, let me comment on something you said, because I definitely felt this when at Creo, when I realized that there were things people would tell their team lead that they wouldn't tell me. And I like to think I am just the friendliest, most approachable, safest person in the world. I'm not about ego and machismo or whatever. Like I'm just really easy going and people could tell me almost anything. I, it did happen that I would hear stuff through the grapevine about myself, about the company, stuff where I would say, any feedback for me? And I'd hear nothing, but now I'm hearing that there really is feedback. It was really hard. I realized that everybody who came to work for me had been a part of multiple other organizations that taught them how safe it was to give feedback to people with more power than them. The first organization is the one you're born into. You learn, and uh, Adam's child will learn, uh, <laughs> a lot about life in the coming two years and about power dynamics and hierarchy and organizational systems as the child observes Adam and Julia and how they relate and how they relate to the child and what is safe to ask, what is safe, how is failure tolerated, right? All kinds of things we learn as little kids, but we internalize it so much we don't realize that it's really shaped us. But then, of course, recognize that most people you hire, you won't be their first boss. If they had a boss in the past who yelled and screamed or cussed or hit them or who knows what could have happened, shamed them publicly, embarrassed them, fired them for making a mistake, you may have to overcome a whole lot of boss baggage in order to get them to open up. My, my wow. point here is just that you, I believe that you can only invite people to come close. And you do that through illustrating and behaving in ways that are safe and open and transparent. But if some people feel the risk is too much, they won't. And you can't be responsible for that. You can only be responsible for inviting people, continually inviting them, and if possible, understanding in the interview stage how much of a, of a trend or like what, what do you see in people that like I like to find people who feel pretty safe with uh, team dynamics and power dynamics and feel safe speaking their mind. If I can do that in the interview, 
frankly, I can avoid a whole lot of pain and frustration in the coming five years it takes for me to figure out that this person's never going to be the kind of team player that I hope they'd be. Sure, sure. I wanted to point out a couple of things that are maybe actionable. I think we've talked about some really important points today and some things that I definitely think there will be a lot of people who can reflect on them and resonate with maybe a situation they're going through. But I did want to direct some people back to your website, marcusblinkenship.com, and we'll have this in the show notes as well. There are some tools just right there that I've definitely thought were really handy tools. There's a couple of downloads, cheat sheet type of things. One for a one-on-one framework, which is something that we we do and, and is something that if you think that now is a good time for yourself to in- implement one-on-ones at your company, and I you have to do them at least a couple of times to really get in a groove. The first one is awkward and weird and drawn out. Nobody knows what to say, but by the time you get to like the third one, you, you everybody's sort of settled in to it. People, they're thinking about it in between. They're coming up with things they want to talk about at the next one. So you got to get through that first couple. But if you need some training wheels for your one-on-ones, there's a great cheat sheet at marcusplankenship.com, which again, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Tell me about the developer delegation checklist. Sure. Well, one of the things, you know, it doesn't happen as much in Agile, but for a lot of people listening, they might be still trying to refine their Agile processes. And so what that means is a lot of times developers are just getting told things or designers are getting told things. And oftentimes I feel like there is a big communication gap between the person telling what needs to be done and the person who's receiving that message and how they're interpreting it. And so what the checklist does is it basically sets forth the outside of just the what the task is, design a new landing page, right? That's maybe the what. You also need to check for understanding, set expectations about timeframes, ask them how long do they think it should take, when when would they like you to check back in with them. Let's set a date on the calendar when you're going to come back and, and revisit this topic if you haven't heard back. How do they ask questions? How do they get clarifications? Do they go right to the client? Do they come to you? So there's actually a whole lot of other bits that make delegation useful and less frustrating. And so the checklist kind of walks through three phases of that, what you tell them, what you do next, and how you follow up with them. Great. As just a little teaser, I'm very excited because Marcus has agreed to do a couple more of these these episodes, but we're actually going to dive a little deeper. We're going to dive into how we at Zeal actually start a project, how we create a foundation for a successful project. We're going to talk about processes that we go through in order to really set things off in the right path and make sure that the right team is established, make sure that there's good clarity, all of those types of things right at the beginning of a project. And again, we work with client projects. So we're working with a bunch of different clients at, at one time. And so when you're working in-house, there's some adaptation to make it something that works for your in-house projects. So we'll talk about some of that stuff. And it'll be neat because we're really going to be focused on zeal process. But I'm excited to be having this conversation with Marcus because he brings so much to to the whole 
game of consulting and and really understanding how to be effective as a team. So we'll be actually probably talking about beating up some things in these episodes coming up. And so really keep keep a lookout because we're going to dive deeper into these topics as we uncover the mysteries of just getting a project off to a successful start. Yeah. And you know, I think that the tagline, I've got this tagline running around my head because I'm so excited about this because you guys do this so well. And the tagline I keep thinking of is, hope is not a strategy. (laughs) We are going to intentionally lay the foundation. We're not just going to be blindly optimistic, unicorns and rainbows, but we're going to come in and talk about how you guys work. And it really is work work with clients to set the right expectations, to move things forward. And I think so much of it can be applied to internal projects. I worked in corporate IT, like I said, 14 years, and still there, hope was the primary strategy for how's it going to come out? Oh, it'll be great. Oh, there's so much hope at the beginning. Midway through, oh, such a sad affair. It's a learning process too. And, and that's, I th- honestly, I think that's one of the things that we've had. It's a blessing of being a consultant is being able to see so many different configurations and be on so many projects that have different struggles, you know? And, and again, I am definitely not going to make any statements that we have perfect projects. All projects are, are quirky because people are involved, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so they all have their things, but how can we set them up so that there's transparency, there's good communication, that there's a strong and deep sense of understanding that we're reflecting as often as we need to be and, and that we're, we're, again, setting clear expectation and, and we're reflecting on that expectation because expectations and reality are a shifting, flexible thing. And if they, if you don't reflect on expectations regularly, you're going to have, you're going to run into that situation where you are not hitting the mark in somebody's eyes. So we're going to talk about all of that over the next couple of episodes. And I'm super excited and just stoked. But today, before we sign off, where can people find you at? marcusblankenship.com. Sign up for the list to learn how to go from being a great coder to a great leader. Pretty much applies to designers and other folks as well. But if you're an expert and now you have to help other experts do their job, my mailing list is for you. Awesome. And what about socially? Are you active on the social networks? Twitter as Just Zeros, at Just Zeros, which is a terrible name. And I'll tell you the joke that's behind it another day. It's stuck with you, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fantastic. You can get to all of that stuff at MarcusBlankenship.com. Again, we're going to have links in the show notes. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an awesome conversation. And and again, I think that there's, there's a lot that can be gleaned just just by hearing some of this conversation, reflecting on it, and then making that taking that step to go visit. I mean, you've got a huge backlog of great interviews with people on your podcast, as well as trainings and, you know, like I said, checklists and cheat sheets, and just you gave, you give a lot of stuff away for free, which is amazing. And so, thank you for uh, being you in this industry. It makes it makes doing our jobs a lot easier. That's for sure. It's really been my pleasure, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. All right. So we'll see you again soon. Thanks a lot. Again, this is uh, the Zeal Interestings podcast. Have a great day.